Hi, I'm Gabby Logan and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. This time, I'm joined by BBC journalist and presenter Martine Croxall. Since joining BBC News in 2001, Martine has covered almost all the major news stories that have happened since, including the Iraq War, the financial crash in 2008 and the death of Prince Philip. As well as her work covering the news, she's also a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society Society and a celebrity mastermind champion. In our conversation, she tells me what she learned working in her parents' textiles company growing up in Leicestershire, how she overcame her childhood shyness to become a TV broadcaster, and who she imagines she's speaking to when she's presenting the news. Hi, Martine. It's really good to see you, and thank you so much for coming on the II Family Money podcast. It's a pleasure. Let's go right back to your childhood and uh, what you learnt about money from your parents and family life, if anything. Were you aware of how wealthy they were or how things might have been challenging for them? No. In the first few years, I wasn't aware. I only know now because of having talked about how difficult things were. My parents ran a textile factory for a very long time and... They built it from very, very little. There was just my mum and dad, and I think my grandmother was with them from the beginning, and probably my dad's dad as well. So maternal grandmother, paternal grandfather, very much a family business, in a shed at the bottom of the garden uh, with a one machine, a counter and a little stove and 50 quid, I think. That's the story. And so when I was small and my sister was little, they didn't have very much money at all. But we were blissfully unaware of that because we had a lovely life and we lived in a nice place and we lived in a village. So we had, you know, the the run of the place. It was all a bit Enid Blyton, I suppose. (laughs) And we had nice food and a comfy home and lots of attention. So nothing else really matters. And we went to the village school and we all felt sort of fairly similar to everybody else. So we weren't aware of it and my parents certainly didn't discuss it. So that little shed in the bottom of the garden and the one machine, did that grow into a bigger factory and a bigger business for them? Yeah, ne- but always next door. So they never really seemed to switch off. They were always, the phone was all switched through from the factory to the house in the evenings and weekends. And there was, it always felt like they were always on duty. And... You know, they'd be up in the morning to open it up and then they'd be working all night. And sometimes before my dad could afford a mechanic, he'd have to do all, you know, all of the repairs to keep things going. And sometimes he would be going to bed when my grandmother came to open up the factory the next morning. So it was it was really hard work. They were absolute grafters. Mm. And I think that's where I get my sort of work ethic from. But yes, at its height, either in the factory or out of the factory because some people would do out work at home they employed over 150 people at times so it was quite a big endeavor and what was really lovely is that a lot of people stayed for a very long time and worked for them for decades right to the very end when they finally retired in their early 60s when the textile market kind of this was in leicestershire was it? it really when, yeah. yeah, in Leicestershire, in a village called Stoke Golding. Because Leicester's got quite a reputation, hasn't it, for, for tech dials, obviously, and, and clothing manufacturing even now. 
Yes, and uh, Hinkley, the local town to where I was born, I was born and brought up in Stoke Golding. Hinkley, at, at one point in the 1800s, was one of the richest towns in, in Europe because of textiles. And it was there was textiles, there was printing, and then uh, boot and shoe as well, yeah. which was, the, was the, other, the other big industry. Down the road in Northampton, that was where uh, mm. shoes and boots were manufactured, wasn't it? So this was never a business that yeah. we, you were expected to take over. They were, They never thought. Oh no, no. no! In fact, the opposite. Were they? Were they hoping you definitely wouldn't? Yes, very much so. Um, my dad felt like a square peg in a round hole. Um, he had, oh, he had been an indentured apprentice at the local newspaper, the Hinkley Times. Ah. Where the journalism starts. A few years later, <laughs> I wrote the weddings page when I did a wedding. <laughs> I did a, a little um, internship with with them and and really enjoyed it. And then his mum was dying of cancer and my grandfather was trying to run his previous uh, incarnation of a sock factory and in the end he had to give that up. But my dad had given up his indentured apprenticeship to work with my grandfather who was trying to nurse my grandmother. And so she died. My parents set up their own business, um, out of, not even out of the ashes of my grandfather's business, mm. but it, it, he just couldn't hold everything together. So my dad sort of fell into textiles in a permanent way and he never intended to. He intended to be a typographic designer in, in the newspaper industry. So he was quite keen that my sister and I did not <laughs> go into the family business. And the only bit of advice he ever gave me, um, and uh, my apologies to accountants out there, is don't be an accountant because <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll die from the inside out and you'll hate it. Not that he, you know, he was always very glad of a good accountant, but he couldn't see me, me doing it. So they didn't have a huge amount of money, but so they had to be quite prudent with it. Mm. And I'd learned quite a lot of lessons early on about debt and don't spend what you haven't got. That was the me the message. And, right. I, and I've always done that. And uh, obviously, they, you know, they were entrepreneurs and, you know, you know they, were, they were running their own business. That, that entrepreneurial spirit, was that something that you ever kind of toyed with the idea of setting up your own endeavour or doing something that was off your own, own back? Or was it always, was journalism always the thing? No, I wanted to be a vet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realised I was not going to get the grades to be a vet. And then I thought, gosh, what do I want to do? And around the age of 15, I realised that humanities and languages were, were my thing. And that's so I did those for A-level. And thought, well, what do I like doing? What, what's, what am I good at? I thought, well, I quite like writing. I like project work. I like creative things. And then I thought, actually, working in radio might be a really nice thing to do. And I never intended to be on air, ever. No, no, no. I, the, the idea appalled me. I was quite relatively shy. I mean, people at school kind of remember me being quite sort of forthright, but also quite shy. So if I had to ask a question in class, answer a question in class, I'd, be, I'd blush crimson <laughs> and I'd look like a beetroot for the rest of the day. And I would get, you know, the mick taken out of me for it. So when I became a TV newsreader, presenter, a lot of the people I was at school with were like, how have you gone on to do that? You were the girl who used to you know, blush like a radish. And how did you get rid of the blushing then? A lot of people who perhaps aren't very good at public speaking and don't enjoy that would love to know how you overcame that feeling of fear. Well, slight, growing up, I think, I mean, my parents used to say, you'll grow out of it. And I never believed them. I never believed them. And, and you do. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because the BBC, when I worked for local radio, BBC Radio Leicester, they kind of gave me the authority to go and do it. Right. 
In fact, they gave me no choice. So you didn't feel like an imposter in in that industry. You felt very much like you were meant to be. No, I didn't feel like it was me really doing it. I felt like it was was the BBC giving me (laughs) a shove, a permission to go and do it. And um, again, it's practice. You had to do it because they told you to. Yeah. Somebody needs to go and interview this man dressed as a tree down in the centre of Leicester to launch a charity to plant a national forest. And it has to be you because there's no one else in the newsroom. And I said, but I don't want to do that. That's not how I see my mm. myself. And they said, well, tough, you're going to have to do it. And I did it and I did it well. And you enjoyed it, it and off you went. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when you then became the journalist that you you are now and you started moving up your career ladder and you know getting better and better and then you work for the BBC and BBC News Channel you're entrenched every day in big stories and some of those stories can be distressing and some of them can be you know emotional how do you how do you as a person deal with that part of the job where you're surrounded by things that not everybody kind of gets to you know know the, the bottom of the detail of I was talking to some journalism apprentices today and they were asking me a similar sort of question. How do you not get affected by it? And I think the answer is you you don't not get affected. You do get affected. And I think the older I've got and having had children, you're acutely aware of how precious life is. And that might sound like a bit of a cliche, but I think if if you don't think deeply about some of the stories that you're covering, you don't think deeply about the people who are affected, how are you going to answer the right questions? And where's your humanity? Mm-hmm. Because without that, you're just reading words out. And I think you don't have to show people how you feel, but you need to have the right sort of questions at your fingertips that are the, the ones that your viewers or your listeners mm. will, will want you to, to ask. And it's about people mm. in the end. All of it. All the stories that you do ultimately come down to that, don't they? Even ultimately, even yeah. the most kind of economic stroke financial stories, it's all about, and we are living in a time with the cost of living crisis, that it all comes down to people. So do you think about what that person sat on the sofa or chopping up vegetables in their kitchen who's got, you know, got the telly on in the corner? Do you think about them, how you're communicating to them? Do you have, do you have a person, you know, that you broadcast to? Definitely. And I remember one of the first things I was ever taught when I worked in radio is you are talking to one person at a time. And it's a really good thing to remember, I think. It, it informs how you mm-hmm. speak. It informs how you write. So I would never say, hello, everyone, because... I'm only talking to one person at a time. And so I tend to think of not a a specific person, but I think of an intelligent acquaintance. So somebody who's switched on, who's engaged, who's interested, or why would they be watching Mm. the news? And also someone who I probably don't know that well, but I'm on sort of, you know, conversational Mm -hmm. terms with. And I think that gives me the right Mm -hmm. tone, hopefully warm not too formal, but also not assuming anything about them because then that becomes too mm. familiar. So I have an, like an, an informed acquaintance in mind when I, when I speak to them. I'm also acutely aware that I'm very, very lucky. I'm very privileged to have come from the background that I came from where I had a family that cared about me and that always promoted my best interests and who always cared about me. My dad died about 18 months ago and he was six foot eight, and he always said that he was my biggest <laughs> fan, and he was. And he could al- he could also be my biggest critic. You know, I think he could do it in in the right way. And my mum still watches me whenever she can. So you know that mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. that background, 
it's a huge advantage and I never forget that. And I know that I'm lucky to do a job that is uh, interesting and well paid for a respected organisation. I know it has its detractors too, but I'm immensely fortunate and I never forget that. I'm acutely aware of how difficult life is for a lot of people. And I think that helps remind you of the questions you need to be asking. There's somebody who, if they're going to lose that extra £20 universal credit that they were given Mm. every week during COVID, means a huge amount to that person. And the consequences of them not having it anymore because the government's decided that's what they're going to do, there are consequences to that. When you started out then at the BBC, your your biggest fan, your dad, or maybe it was your mum, did they sit down and say to you, right, Martin, we haven't told you too much about family finances so far, but this is what you need to be doing. This is where you need to be, you know, putting some money aside. Or did they let you get on with it? Well, my mum was quite canny. When I was about 15, she decided that she was going to give me the family allowance that was mine each week. And I can't remember how much it was. It might have been sort of six, seven pounds, something like that, which mm. was quite a lot of mm. money when I was 15. And then she used to top it up to about 10 pounds a week, which again was a lot of money. But she said, that's it. Unless it's education related, like going on a school trip to the theatre or something like that, we don't want to hear from you. And she just said, this is how... <laughs> she wasn't that rude, actually. <laughs> she would never be that rude. She just said, it's, it's really important that we learn to budget. But to budget, you have to have some money and to make it easy and predictable for you you're going to have this amount of money every week and you are going to that's got to cover Mm. everything if you want clothes if you want to go out with friends if you want to buy a gift for a friend for a birthday that's yours and there's no more and so quite quickly I learned to make clever decisions choices about things I'd also and I'm sure it was might not even have been legitimate at the time and certainly wouldn't be now. I worked in my parents' factory from the age of 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I was really, yeah, in the holidays. Yeah. Not, not before school. They weren't that cruel. <laughs> not before school. No, it was only in the holidays, in, usually in the summer holidays. And I used to work from sort of eight in the morning till about 4.30 in the afternoon, half days on a Friday, which was, which was a good day because all factories closed on a Friday afternoon. And I did really dull things like packing Mm. tights and um, decorating tights. In the 80s, there was this Those diamante uh, things. uh, (laughs) Diamantes and flocking (laughs) on tights. Yeah, all of that. And my dad devised a mechanism, a heated arm that you put the tights on or the stockings onto, and then you had to arrange the diamantes. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea that those were applied. No, it was all done by hand. It was all done by hand. That's why they were expensive. I didn't have any martini. And... um, (laughs) Well, I, I was always well off for yeah. hosiery, Gabby. And that's always what all your friends well got for hosiery. Christmas. <laughs> well, yeah, they were they were always very envious of the you know, the the, the, um, the stockings and tights that I had. So I worked from a you know from the age of about twelve in the factory, mm. and I think I earned like one pound forty an hour or something like that when I first started, which wasn't a huge amount of money, but you did forty hours a week. Yeah. What were you doing with all this money then at that age? I was very sensible with it and I am very sensible. With it. I, I'm, I, I'm terrified of debt. I have a, a mortgage <laughs> larger than I'd like it to be. But that's, it's not like backing no. a horse, is it? You know, I've, there's an asset mm. behind it. But I used to take myself off in the October half term 
And I used to drive my mum insane. We used to go to Oxford Street. We'd get the train and we'd go to Oxford Street and I would go to Miss Selfridge and I would buy myself my clothes for the sort for of the winter. season. <laughs> and I would, yes, but I would agonise yeah. over how I Because it's your money, money and not and hers. <laughs> yeah, because I'd earned it. They weren't daft. They weren't daft at all. And I made it, really made it go a long way and I really made it last. And I'd go to Chelsea Girl or you'd go to Topshop and Miss Selfridge's and wander round and round and round, eking out this money to make it stretch as far as possible. And the the biggest purchase I remember making was a, an ankle length coat from Miss Selfridge when I was about six, 15 or 16. And it cost oh, 53 oh. pounds. And it was about a quarter of what I'd earned over Gosh, the summer. It was enormous. A, a huge. Yeah. It was a huge expenditure and I never regretted it because I, I thought you had it for years. Did you it wear it until you were a student? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it then fell off in the end, <laughs> fell off me in the end. So I was very careful and yeah. frugal and my mum and, and my mum made a lot of our clothes when we were growing up. And so you know, you didn't have a lot but what you had was made mm. with love and anything you bought you'd worked hard. Yeah. To to earn the money for so it was well, a really we're good building lesson. a real, real picture here i think of, of the kind of investments <laughs> that you might have ventured into as an adult and i'm guessing they're ones that aren't too risky if you were to do a risk profile i'm very risk averse <laughs> very risk averse I, I wish i were more of a risk taker and i'm just not because i always think it's much nicer to have cash and of course cash <laughs> isn't a very sensible thing to do when inflation rates are high because it, it, the value of it erodes. But, you know, if I could, I'd keep it in a shoebox under the bed. I don't, by the way. So it's ISAs that I, I'm advised on, mm-hmm. really, by somebody who knows more than me. Because I just think you can't... I don't have enough money to dabble and mm-hmm. lose it. It would feel like gambling mm-hmm. to me. So I, I don't do that sort of thing. My ex-husband struggled with money so he used to listen right, to me right. a lot because he he would he would say I, I don't understand money like you understand it so we worked together right. very much and we shared everything and we split everything so know, he's probably very grateful for um, your input then yes he mm. says so he says so yeah and um so we kept out of debt we didn't run up credit card bills um if we used credit cards we'd pay them off every month and you'd mm-hmm. wait and wouldn't be buying anything that you hadn't got the money for or didn't or, or wouldn't have the money coming in in the next paycheck. It sounds really boring, doesn't it? No, well, as I say, your children, have they picked up these, you know, these risk averse vibes or do you see, do you sometimes look at them and think, gosh, why why aren't you more frugal? Um, with my, my son's not as frugal as I am. My daughter is very good at uh, budgeting mm-hmm. and she's paid for herself with a bit of help from us. She's paid for herself to go off travelling and she's worked. Mm-hmm. She worked. Uh, my son's a real grafter, but he likes to spend what yeah. he's earned. And he's a student. And I just think, yeah. why not? You know? So you quite, you quite like that. You don't mind him going off and spending what he's, he's earned. No, I just said to him, if you, didn't, if you didn't spend as much, you wouldn't need to work as hard. <laughs> but he says, I like, I like it. <laughs> but he has a yeah. work ethic. You know, he, he's, he really works hard. He can, he'll work in a cinema or he'll work in, the, in, in um, a restaurant alongside being yeah. a student and he's doing really well in his studies yeah. so they've, they've got the work ethic from clearly from both i mean sides it goes right family. down from the grandparents yeah. doesn't it um as well that yeah. you they, yeah. they've in, inherited yeah. something uh enormously yeah. valuable in terms of their work ethic and their appreciation i hope so i'm sure that they think that i'm 
a bit dull in, in approaching things like this, but I don't want the worry. I would worry too much about having debt. And I have a really lovely life. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of being sensible, I don't drive a fancy car, but I did, did treat myself to a little MGBGT. Right. Did they think you were having a midlife crisis? I think I've had so many of those. <laughs> and I'd always wanted one and it hadn't seemed like a very sensible car to buy when I was a young reporter in local radio where you need a car that's reliable and an old MG wasn't going to be. So then I found one, but it was a bargain and the guy wanted a quick sale. And so this was my... Of course my... it was, Marty. <laughs> Everything you've told me so far, I can't see you getting ripped off. I wouldn't like to be the person selling you a second-hand car. Well, no, I made him an offer and he said... He said yes, so I thought that's it. And um, it's worth more than I bought it for already. I didn't oh, well. buy it. For, I mean, I knew it would hold its hold yeah. its value, but it felt kind of reckless. Go on then. What's what's the worst thing? Because this is even a secondhand car has gone up in value, right? Because you knew it was going to hold its value, and you, you've clearly made some very good decisions about you know investing in things like ISAs, and you've said you describe yourself as risk averse. Is there anything you've done? Even as a child, you're saving up all summer. Is there anything you've done that you think? Oh, that was a that was a waste of cash. I shouldn't have shouldn't have blown it on that. Or that that investment wasn't quite what I thought. No, I know it's awful, isn't it? I'm so must sound so boring. I spend my money on doing nice things like going out for dinner. Mm. So some people might look at that and think, why have you spent all that money on a meal? But for me, it's about you know who you're dining with and that whole mm. experience. I like holidays when I can afford them, and that's what I like to spend my money on doing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have one of those I save accounts back in the day, which, um, you know, they say if it looks too good to be true, it probably, probably is. is. <laughs> and it was. And it was one of those um, ICEs that a lot of people, they were paying like 7% or something stupid. Mm-hmm. And it was based in Iceland. And then the crash happened of 2008 and everybody lost their money. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh dear. But of course, there was a bailout. So you got your money back. But it did teach me that if it looks really generous and it's out of keeping with everything else that's that's on the market, Mm. you're probably going to be had. So the idea of cryptocurrencies terrifies Mm. me. You know, I wouldn't, because I don't have enough information at my disposal Mm. and I don't care enough about it to go and learn. So I steer clear. I was about to say that actually, that a lot of, it sounds like as well, you want to know everything about what you're about to invest into and and research it. So sitting there as a newsreader, when you're hearing big global macroeconomic kind of, you know, stories, catastrophes and stories about banks as we have in the last couple of weeks and, and some, you know, must be times where you've had good financial stories you've been able to deliver. Does that inform where you are? Yes, definitely. And the, I think the, the thing that I can point to most readily is the interest rates were going up last year. I could see my mortgage deal coming to an end. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do I pay a small penalty to get out of it, to get into a new deal a few months before I really need to, or do I just sit tight? So you're going to lock into something at that point, obviously. Yeah, I was already locked in. I'd got a few Mm -hmm. months to go. I could get out by paying a small penalty and lock in quickly. Mm. And I was keeping an eye on the interest rates. And obviously, we report them every time they Mm. go up, down or stay the same whenever the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England meets. And I just thought, I need to go now. I need to do it now. So I had my mortgage broker on standby. Paul, do it now. And um, we beat 
an interest rate rise, I think it was last October. And I was thinking, I started to see that the inflation rate seemed to be coming down. I was thinking, oh, I went too soon and I've locked myself in for something that I could probably have avoided. And now the inflation rate's gone up again. And then again, the interest rate went up again by a quarter of 1% into the other day. So I kind of thought, on balance, I've probably done the right thing. But what I've given myself is peace of mind and certainty that I know how much I've got to pay every month. Mm-hmm. It's really dull, isn't it? No, no. I think, you know, when you have a win on a mortgage like that or a situation where it comes off, I think it's such a satisfying thing, isn't it? You know, yeah. I think and, and, and it can go the other way as well, you know, where you, you know, you decide that you, you're going to go variable and then things, you know, go get really low for a while. And then, you know, so I think it's um, I think it's very um, sensible, but obviously to be admired. You know, that's a lot of people would probably not have gone when you did. So um, so then when you think, do you ever go, oh, I've, I've saved this much I'm going to invest it in this now or would you just keep it in the bank I like things being in the bank I've got this silly habit I suppose of if you save 100 pounds you don't want to go below that 100 pounds and then if you save 500 pounds you don't want to spend the 500 pounds and there comes a point when you just think when is enough enough mm, in your savings yeah you can be a slave to it can't you and the mm, point is mm. you're supposed to be saving for a rainy day and I would go, yeah, but it's not raining enough yet. I'll just, I'll just wait. And it'd have to be a torrential downpour um, before I would sort of dip into it, really. I mean, I, it is slightly different now because I've got obviously children at university age. So they need supporting mm. um, through that. And I'm trying to avoid them having as, as much debt as they could have. I mean, they have to take out some loans because that's, that's the way it is these days. But it is a stick to beat myself with. That you know, you reach a certain level of savings, and you think, but it can't go below that by even a penny. If they start seeing you going mad and frivolous with money, though, then they'll be thinking, "Hang on a second, she's taught us yeah. all these lessons, and now she's spending the inheritance. Yeah. What's she doing? We can't have her spending all the." <laughs> no, no, um, I, I can't imagine it happening. I can't imagine it happening. I do, like you said, I do, I do my research. When I'm buying anything that might be a little bit costly, I will do my research. I will try mm-hmm. and make sure that I get the best bargain, the best deal, the best value for money. And I think that's part of that journalism thing, isn't it? That you're always mm. asking questions. And also, you know where to look. And I'm mm. not afraid of picking up the phone and asking somebody who knows more than I do. I think that's the, you know that's what's the, the mm. great thing about being a journalist is that you always know somebody who knows more than you. Then take advantage of their knowledge. Can we talk a bit about the BBC? Um, and one of the if things want <laughs> I want to talk about is uh, how salaries of presenters are publicised every year. Mm-hmm. And often they, you know, they're just focusing on the kind of, you know, the Gary Linekers and the Graham Nortons and Claudia Winkermans. But um, anybody can see what we earn from the BBC as, as part of their um, policy to be more open and transparent. Which the government asked them to be. <laughs> To yeah. be fair. <laughs> How do you feel uh, about having people know what you earn? Well, they don't know what I earn because I'm not on the high pay list. Ah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm quite, to be, to be honest about it, I'm quite close to being on the high pay list, but I'm not. Uh, I'm paid very well for what I do. And part of that is because the BBC's addressed equal pay issues, let's say, mm-hmm over time and I've been involved in encouraging them to do that I think transparency is a good thing especially in an organisation that's funded 
publicly, mm-hmm. which my part of the BBC is. I don't. I work for the publicly funded bit, mm-hmm. and I think that if we don't do that in publicly funded organisations, you never. We're not going to see it in other places. I realise there's an argument that it's an intrusion of people's private affairs, but I also think that it it means that we have to be accountable. Mm-hmm. to the people who are paying for for, for our uh, our salaries. And I, I know that a lot of my colleagues believe, certainly women especially, believe that transparency across the board, if everybody knows what everybody earns, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So I think there is there's a merit Has it to helped, it, I, do you think, redress the balance, that transparency between the genders? Uh, higher levels, yes, because that's where it's tra- that's where the transparency is. Anyone who earns over one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, you will have, and you're part of the publicly funded bit of the license fee rather than BBC Studios, which is the commercial mm. arm. They're not um, subject to the same scrutiny. I think it has it helped get the conversation going. Mm-hmm. It was a very difficult conversation. I think it's made people aware that pay discrepancies, pay inequalities do exist. And there are some of my colleagues would like to see complete transparency from, you know, entry level all the way up to, you know, Graham Norton and, and Gary Lineker. I, I wouldn't mind that at all. To go right, every, every level of the no, BBC to have transparency. I and you think that would, that for would, everybody. And that would help further the the gender redress and, and get people yes. more parity. I mean, there is an argument that it means that the BBC's competitors then know what they've got to spend Mm. to poach the talent, if that's what mm. you want to call it. Um, but then the BBC can always develop its new talent. That's what the BBC's done. Mm-hmm. No, there, there are lots of very talented people in the BBC and a queue of others lining up to come in and, and, and learn their, their craft. So on balance, I think it's a good thing. Now, a couple of weeks ago, there was the big Gary Lineker weekend, let's call it. Um, and obviously that was all to do with impartiality, something that has uh, affected you as well in terms of on-air uh, comments. When you look at that situation, do you think there's work to be done in terms of getting that right across the board? It's not yet a, a place where perhaps everybody is fully aware of what can be said, should be said, and the public perhaps haven't got quite the full story on that? I think everyone should read the editorial guidelines that the BBC has put together over the last hundred years of best practice. You'll be familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. I do think there are different degrees of commitment to impartiality, depending on whether you are in news or not. I think Mm. an organisation like the BBC will be criticised from every direction at times. Whatever. You know, yeah. I get accused mm. of being too, uh, being left wing, being right wing, being non-committal. You know, you can, you get and nobody knows what mm. my views are. No, I promise you, nobody mm. knows because I've never expressed. Well, I know them. from hosting shows on Five Live, like Breakfast, when you see the text console coming through, and it's as you say, accusations come in from all sides of the political spectrum, which. As Nicky Campbell regularly says when he's doing his phone-ins, we must be doing this okay because actually we're being accused of all these different um, political standpoints. And uh, you can't live your life by that, can you? You have to you have to be able to do your job in a way that, that you know you're delivering the news in an impartial way, not be reactive to what people say. 
I've got really good friends I've known my whole life who don't know what my politics are. Because I'm really careful about who I talk to about this stuff. Even to my own children, I found it difficult. And there's that moment where they, they want to, I want to discuss politics with them because I think it's important. But I'm so wary of telling them how I vote, what my views are. So the bit, the thing that you're referring to is to do with an impartiality issue last year mm-hmm. in the papers uh, when I was presenting, hosting an, an edition of the papers in October last year. And we did a programme and it was on the night of um, Boris Johnson deciding to pull out of running for the leadership of the Conservative mm-hmm. Party. And it was all happening so last minute. It's really nice to actually have the opportunity to set the record straight on this because it's very difficult when you're exposed and isolated and accused of all sorts of stuff that you know mm. that you didn't do. But sometimes trying to correct it on the public record without the might of the BBC's comms department behind you is very hard as that lone voice. Mm. So... In a nutshell, we went on air to present the paper review with no papers. And my excitement was, this is a breaking story. Mm-hmm. We haven't got any papers to do a paper review. I didn't mention a politician. I didn't mention a contest. I didn't mention a political party. We had a lively exchange of views, as the papers is supposed to be about. I mean, otherwise, what are you meant to do? You invite people on, they express an opinion and you shut them down. I mean, you know, I'm not there to be the buzzkill. You know, let's not do a paper review if people can't come on and express an opinion. I recognise that as the presenter, your job is to ensure balance and provide challenge. And anyway, a clip was circulated online that had 12 minutes of that programme removed. So it made it look like two things I said were contiguous when they weren't. And that was what generated the the brouhaha, was not mm. what we transmitted. No. But a claim of something that people said we had said and we hadn't. So the in the end, the investigation said that well, there was on balance, there was a risk of a perception of bias about a political contest. So it was a very sort of dilute mm. concern in the end, but it generated a lot more um, hot air than it should have done. And I just do keep saying to people, please don't keep repeating these claims about what you think I said, because actually it's defamatory and you really need to stop doing that. Yeah. And and as you say, the danger of kind of, you know, piecing together um, clips like that, it, when you when you're in the middle of that kind of storm, it's a horrible place to be. But it also then, I imagine afterwards, has given you even greater awareness and even kind of more acute sensory kind of perception to what goes on on those kinds of, you know, that clickbait world that we're living in when you're reading other people's stories. Yeah. You need to re- go back to the original source. Mm hmm. Because if you look at the original source and the context of it, it will often be very different. And so some people have said, I either applauded or I didn't agree with what you said. And I said, what do you think I said? And they tell me what they think I said. And I said, you watched the edited clip online, didn't you? You didn't watch the whole programme. And they went, what do you mean? And I go, go and watch the programme. And they watch the programme and they go, oh. Oh. That's not what you said. <laughs> no, I didn't. No. I didn't at all. So, um, but I do, I'm not making light of it at all. I completely, I'm steeped in BBC values. Mm. Cut me in half and I'm like a stick of rock. You know, it will say BBC News in the middle of me. 
And I'm really proud of what we do. I know we don't always get it right, but we try really, you know, we try really mm. hard. We agonise over things. The number of meetings mm. that the BBC has in the course of a day to get everything right. And and we we don't always get it right. And um, I think the, the transparency that we're trying to bring to our reporting is a really good thing because we're trying to explain the nuts and bolts of what we do and why we do it. Because a lot of yeah. the stuff that we do as journalists goes on in our heads mm-hmm. and it's it's not visible to people. And I think that's a good thing to try and explain. And um, I'm always keen to point out that we are required to be duly impartial. It's not the same as being impartial. There's a big difference. And it's to do with weighing up the weight Mm. of one argument against another. A bit like climate change, you know, for a long Mm. time, we used to always balance. Alleged, alleged climate change. Or you'd have, you know... um, you try and find a climate a change denier to, to, give the, yeah. mm-hmm. to, to go against a climate scientist, even though 90 the percent of the there. scientists <laughs> live there. You know. So yeah. in the end, we stopped doing that. So it's uh, it's about not offering false equivalents as well. So um, there's well, a lot to, thank you. lot to think about. Thank you for talking about it. And, That's um, all right. I hope I've not got myself into any bother no, again. No, you haven't. And, and <laughs> don't worry, the II Family Money Show would never, <laughs> ever be party to that, Martine. And thank no, you so thank much you. for your time today. And um, and yeah, you've, you've made me think a little bit more about uh, being a, a bit more sensible. Yeah, I've, I've, I try, I try. But um, I, I love the, um, the work ethic that's been kind of bled through the whole family as well going through it's um i think it's so true isn't it I've, my daughters and, and son they're real grafters and i think they see us working hard yeah. and you know but you have to really... remember i think what my my ex-husband taught me was it's okay to have some fun with your money as mm. well and um you know if you want to buy that nice bottle of wine every now and mm. again really absolutely you know enjoy it because otherwise you know you're working a long time aren't you for for what Thanks for listening. If you have time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time.